think all of you have these little five by seven cards. I'm glad that you do because they have the introduction to Brian Eno that I'm not going to make. Instead, very briefly, I want to explain what these cards can be used for. On the back is a place for a question. If you have one, either during the lecture, or write a question. Add your name. I'll explain why in a minute. And then uh, pass, uh, when you have a question on there, pass it to the sides of one of the yellow uh, hard-headed volunteers. In the event of an earthquake, dive under the nearest volunteer. It's, those questions keep coming up here. The way it will work is, uh, I'll be sifting questions later on, Brian will be sifting questions, and ones that he finds uh, sufficiently pithy to engage, he'll call out the name of the person whose question uh, he's working with. If that, that's your cue. If it's your question and your name, go ahead and stand up. We can see who you are. And then stand up and sit down while uh, he deals with your question, and so we'll go. Uh, let's see how that works. Now, there's a lot of people out in the, couldn't make it into the main room here, out in the uh, Annie Leibowitz exhibit. I hope you guys can hear okay. If you can't, this is probably about the level of audibility. And uh, sort from there. Uh, after Brian Mignino's uh, presentation, um, I'll talk again for a minute while he's going through questions, and then we'll go with you anyway. We'll see how it works anyway. Please welcome Brian Yes. Mostly 
had a voice sitting at the top, then some rhythm instruments, and then some drums. And the focus of the shape of the music was very parameter. What I found I was likely to listen to was music where that pyramid was squashed down, where no particular instrument was featured as the lead instrument, as opposed to the background instruments, and where instead you had a, a network of interactions between lots of different sounds. In my own work, this manifested in a, an emphasis, an exaggeration, or an interest in making the background what would have been called the background more interesting, and making what would have been called the foreground uh, less and less a part of the piece. So sinking the foreground elements into the background. The, the other thing I was interested in was losing the obvious boundaries of the music. I wanted to make something that didn't sound like it had edges, sonic edges, or that it had a beginning and an end. I wanted to make something that belonged to a big space, and you as the listener could hear some of that, but not necessarily all of it. And I wanted to make something also that felt like it had always been going on, just happened to catch a part of it. Um, I guess the first piece I made that really had this feeling of being a kind of eternal present tense was the record called Discrete Music in 1975, which was um, a very long record for a vinyl album. It's the longest I could possibly get onto one side of the record, 30 minutes and 31 seconds. And I want to give the implication that this was not a piece of music in the ordinary sense of something that had been composed at the beginning, middle and end. It was a kind of continuous, uh, endless uh, place in time. So I was developing this idea of place, of music being not so much some kind of a sonic narrative, but more a sonic landscape. Again, with the feeling that this was a landscape that was always in the present tense. It was an extended present tense. Right. Chattering. Why don't you use the other one? Shall I? We can't hear you. Or hold up the level there like this. Shall I try this mic as well? Is that better? Yeah, I didn't really want to use this mic because then I can't use my hands, you see. <laughs> There's a stand. There's a stand. Okay. There's a stand. Oh, that's okay. I'll, I'll manage with this for a while. Can you hear better now? Thank you, Charles. <laughs> He's good on mic technique. That's Charles Anacomian, master of mic technique. So, in sometime in the late 70s, a couple of things happened to me that made a big difference to the way I thought about music. One of them was in Germany. I was sitting in an airport and listening to the kind of music they play in airports, the message of which is, 
don't worry, you're not going to die. <laughs> and it's, it's music that is deliberately very lightweight, with no threat, everything's got a nice smile. And usually the most disconcerting thing about it is that the tape player doesn't work properly, so, so it has this kind of effect as it plays. And you often think, if they can't get that to work... <laughs> um, but anyway, I was listening to this music and I thought, this is exactly the wrong kind of music to play in an airport. It makes you really nervous, because it makes you think, all they're saying to you is, death, don't mention it, don't even think about it. So I, I started thinking, what... What would make you not worry about death so much? And I started to think that what you really needed in the airport was the kind of music that would make you care less about your own life, that would make you not be so concerned about the prospect of dying. Um, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> um, so, so I want to make a kind of music that would actually reduce your focus on this moment in time that you happen to be in and make you sort of settle into time a little bit better. Um, and that I came up with the record music for airports from there. And that, that was a record that was very deliberately aimed at changing my sense of time, but hopefully other people's as well. It, it was very much to do with time. About this this was about the period where I realized that a lot of what I was thinking about musically was to do with the experience of time. Um, shortly after making that record, I moved to New York. Um, I was living on 8th Street and 5th Avenue. And <laughs> it's a wonderful place. Uh, how about 3rd um, Avenue? <laughs> I was invited to a party one evening um, by a friend of mine, a singer, and she gave me the address. I didn't know New York very well, so I took the address and caught a cab. Um, and the cab driver started driving south, and the streets got darker and bumpier, and the potholes got bigger. And I don't know. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Makes me think I've died. <laughs> do you know what? Could I have a glass, do you think, for my water? Sorry. Thanks. So the potholes got bigger, the steam was coming out of the streets, and finally we, we ended up in a very dark, gloomy, sort of medieval street um, at what appeared to be the address on the card, and I thought, it's very strange that she should live down here, this must be a joke of some kind. And uh, I rang the bell and was um, buzzed in and got in the elevator, and went up the stairs to see a very, very glitteringly expensive loft. This was in itself a surprise to see a place where someone spent so much money in such a bad neighborhood. So I, I asked the hostess during the evening whether she liked living there. By there, I meant in that part of town. 
She said, oh yeah, this is the best place I've ever lived. And I realized that what she meant was within these four walls. So this, I thought, was very, very particularly New York to, to uh, describe the here that you live in as the place within the walls, not to include the neighborhood as part of the part of your living experience. And I, I had this idea that she lived in a in what I called a very small here, H-E-R-E. And I felt fairly confident that I wanted to live in a big here. I wanted to live somewhere where not only the part that I controlled was mine, but the neighborhood to some extent was mine, and I felt that I had some perhaps diminishing degree of involvement and responsibility after I had shut my door. I started to notice that this attitude to space, to the attachment to a very local personal space that I saw in New York, um, also translated into an attitude towards time. I knew a lot of young artists there who had appeared mostly from Ohio, it seemed, <coughs> to, to make their fortune in New York. Um, the Mary Boone Gallery. Where, incidentally, I once posted a doctor in an envelope through the door <laughs> with, the, with the message, why don't you show the real thing? <laughs> I've never told anyone that before. <laughs> um, so, I noticed that these artists who, who were living, it was a very exciting time in New York. Um, they were living a very exciting life, but their commitment to the city was absolutely zero. They planned to move on as soon as they could, or they planned to get a loft like my friend's loft. Um, at least there was no attachment to the idea of the city as a continuing entity. Um, so I thought they, they lived in a very short now. Their sense of now was from about the beginning of last week to the end of next week. Um, and if you said, what are you working on now? They would tell you what they were working on that morning, not what they've been working on for the last couple of years or so. So it was exciting, but it was, it was very narrow. And that, that kind of narrowness in time thinking slightly worried me because it doesn't translate into terribly productive social behavior. It doesn't, for instance, encourage you to set in place uh, projects and agreements and um, arrangements among people that will flower over very long periods. So, my response, I guess, to living in New York was to try to make musics that celebrated both the long now and the big here. I think. I, I think I've always made music as an antidote to the place that I was living in. For instance, the noisiest music I ever made was when I lived in, a, in an idyllic house in the east of England, surrounded only by geese. Um, and I was making sort of bloodthirsty, enraged, 
Afro-jazz-punk music for a brief period. Um, when I was in New York, however, I made quite a lot of the music I made was very, very quiet. Um, the, the music I made that I think was a celebration of the long now idea included the records On Land and Plateau of Mirror with um, uh, Harold Budd. But then there was, there was another thread of the music which I think was in some sense a celebration of the big here. Now, in musical terms, the big here means how much of the world can I include in my music? Um, I guess it's now called world music, but at that time it, it didn't have a name. <laughs> um, and I think the things that came out of that um, thread of my work would have included um, my life in the Bishop Ghost, for example, which was a very African-influenced record. But not only African, it, it also was whatever I happened to hear on the radio at the time. I, I would just take it and build it into the music. And um, funnily enough, I saw Jerry Harrison here earlier, because one of, one of the other manifestations of that is the work that Talking Heads and myself did together, I think. That, that was music that was very much um, a sort of celebration of being alive in a big world and being able to handle the variety, not putting fences around it. So these, these two thoughts, big here and long now, were in my mind, and they remained in my mind. Like many of the other ideas in my mind, I didn't do much with them. They just sat there for a long time. In the early 90s, a group of people were, I suppose, attracted to each other because of their shared interest in the idea of time and in the idea of responsibility for the future. Now, this group of people, Stuart is one of them, obviously, um, came to call themselves the Long Now Foundation. I, I say it this way around because I don't want to give the impression that I started this thing. It, it got my name, but um, it was really the product of a group of people who had converged on this issue from, from many different directions and from many different experiences. We, um, we felt that really there was a need to create some new form of human thinking about time. We were all aware that everything is getting faster. Um, one of our founder members is Danny Hillis, who, who built one of the fastest computers ever made. So he was particularly aware of, of the degree to which time had been sliced into finer and finer parts. We were, we were also aware as we looked around that most of the ambitions and objectives of people in corporations and in government, even in education, had become closer and closer in terms of time. So corporations were living in fear of their quarterly results. Um, politicians were living in fear of the next opinion poll. There seemed to be a, an ever-decreasing horizon into the future. And very little encouragement from any direction for people to think and to lay long-term plans. 
you know, no politician wants to start on a plan that doesn't yield results pretty quickly, at least within his or her term of office. The worst thing of all is if it yields results in the opposition's term of office. So, so, and of course the media don't help this by always focusing on things that seem like blue sky projects and criticizing them um, as being stupidly idealistic and pointless. Um, we thought that there was, first of all, a need for an organization that would celebrate that kind of thinking, that would ally with it, that would support it, that would encourage it, and in fact would try to do it itself. Now, whenever you talk to people about thinking about the future, there are certain standard responses to, to this idea. And I've, um, I've modeled some of these myself, but I'm never going to show you them. The first response I call the realist. This is the person who quite reasonably says, can you make any predictions? So the answer to that is, of course not. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to be a crystal ball or trying to tell you what the future is going to be like. The second character, one very close to my heart, is the pessimist. <laughs> Um, this, this is the person who says, look, there's not going to be a future anyway, so why don't we stop worrying about it? And he could well be right. In fact, I spent a lot of my time thinking, that's me. The only problem is, if he's wrong, you know, if there is a future, uh, it would have been a good idea if we had done something about it. <laughs> The third one is a character that um, I think is a particularly American character. I don't know how many of you have read Voltaire's Candide. In Candide, there's a philosopher called Dr. Pangloss, um, who's constantly in ever-worsening situations, you know, being flayed to death and buggered by hairy Algerian pirates and so on. Um, but who somehow manages to come out of every situation saying everything is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Um, so he's the, the eternal optimist who thinks there's absolutely no point in doing anything about anything because it's all for the best. Um, the last character is 
the designer. <laughs> so when we talk about long now, a lot of people think that this is what we're after doing, that we're after saying we actually know what the world of the future should be like and we're smart enough to design it for you. That isn't the point either. None of these characters, though they, they might represent facets of my character, they aren't what long now is trying to do. They, they all miss the point in a sense. Um, what you could say is that we're trying to encourage a habit of thought. Um, now, habits of thought do, of course, have outcomes. We don't particularly predict those. We're not, we're not trying to predict them. We simply want to start thinking about extending the length of the future that we think about. So we chose an ambitious period of time to think about. We decided we wanted to think about the next 10,000 years. Um, we chose that time because it was the sort of mirror image of the 10,000 years of sort of known human settlements. So we, we see the beginnings of what we would call civilization in the sense of there being towns and cities going back about 10,000 years. And we thought, let's act as though we're in the middle of that ten, of a 20,000 year cycle. So we've had 10,000 years, let's look forward to another 10,000. And if we think about the possibility of humans being here for 10,000 years, it might happen. Um, how does that affect what we do? How does that change the way we think about what we're doing now? I mean, there are some very obvious outcomes to this. You know, um, it's, it's very hard to imagine a world of the future that would be better for having, for instance, less fresh water. Um, <laughs> I, I believe some anti-environmentalists have tried to argue that this might be a better world. Um, so, the suggestion is that if you start to think long-term, there are certain kinds of assumptions about the future that you might make. It doesn't mean that you know how you're going to bring those into effect, but it means that you will assess your probabilities a little bit differently. Um, a very good book about this is about the effect of time on thinking. It's um, a book by Robert Axelrod called The Evolution of Cooperation. Um, it's from the early 80s, I think. He, he looks at situations where competitors, essentially, are placed in a recurring, um, long-term, competitive um, relationship with each other. And it turns out that cooperation nearly always evolves if there is repeated interaction. Um, he gives some, some very famous examples. Um, the most famous that you probably know about is the during the Battle of the Somme. Uh, sorry, not the Somme. D during the trench warfare before the Somme, the um, British troops and the German troops faced each other on the lines. They were very close to each other, um, sometimes only 80 or 100 yards apart. And the same troops were facing each other week after week. 
and eventually they stopped shelling each other. Um, in fact, the famous story is how they put their guns down completely on Christmas Day and came out and played football together. Um, but the one other interesting story actually is a, a, um, an English soldier who was a barber in civilian life who set up a little table in no man's land and began giving haircuts to English and German soldiers in exchange for cigarettes. So the authorities immediately realized that this was a desperate disaster for their war plans. So they made the only intelligent response from their point of view, which is they kept rotating units so that people didn't have a chance to build up cooperative relationships. Now, I suppose one of the things about the long now idea is that we want to build up, we want to suggest that if we think longer term, we will think about building up cooperative relationships. If we think we're all going to be here together for quite a long time, it, it might reward us to think differently about the types of relationships we have. Um, I think as a, as a culture, we've become very good at dealing with the idea of the big here, with the idea that we live in a very interconnected world and that we can enjoy and celebrate the music and the cuisines and the thoughts and the ideas and the aromas and the therapies and everything else of, of other cultures. We, we have developed, I think, a very considerable empathy geographically with other peoples compared to, for example, the 19th century you know, when the um, British Empire treated Everybody who wasn't British as walks, basically. Which, of course, they were. <laughs> but that kind of empathy that we have in a geographic and global sense, the, the increase in that is almost mirrored by the decrease in the empathy we have in time. We seem to have very, very little connection now with um, our possible descendants and our ancestors indeed. So we, we seem to not be able, partly because we're dealing with a very unpredictable future now, to, to make any um, uh, good assumptions about how to make their world better. We, we haven't, we've lost the, we've lost the ability of thinking long term. And it's, it's not surprising because the future changes so quickly. So, we, we believe these things were issues that could somehow be dealt with. The first Long Now project is called the Clock of the Long Now. In fact, it's, in some ways, it was to build that clock that we initially came together. The clock is the design of Danny Hillis, who I mentioned earlier. Danny built the fastest computer, and this is the slowest computer. It's a clock that is designed to run for 10,000 years, um, and to be some kind of an icon, a reminder of the possibility of a very long future like that. Now, when, when you describe this to people, they say, well, 
we really need another clock. You know, there's plenty of them in the world. And that's a good point. We don't really need another clock. Um, gosh, I need my glasses for that, thanks. Okay, I'm going to try to incorporate um, answers to questions in, in my um, talking. I need a pair of I'll come back to that. Um, do you know what would be a good idea? I just realized to read these takes a long time. Why don't you just underline the good bits? <laughs> <laughs> if you can. <laughs> Otherwise, there's going to be big gaps. Um, so, this isn't so much about making a clock. The clock, in a way, is, is a sort of artwork. So it's an idea to inspire people. It's not really an idea to tell people the time. It's an idea to make people think. And what it makes people think, perhaps, is how could a number of reasonably intelligent people spend their time on such a daft project? That's a good thought to have, actually. Because it makes you start thinking about the nature of the project. Whenever we try to describe this thing to people, they say, well, how can you know that about the future? You know, there might be two dark ages, four earthquakes, one volcanic eruption, and you know, God knows what else. Um, of course, as soon as they start saying that, they have begun to engage with the process that we want to engage with. They've started to think about the future. And course, when you actually start a design process, like you start to make a real object that is going to last for 10,000 years, you start to think hard about how the future might be and what, what you would need to survive in it. Some of the design considerations that came up with the clock I did that because I was in San Francisco. <laughs> Um, these, these were some of the principles that Danny wanted to incorporate. Longevity, obviously, has got to last until the time for 10,000 years. Maintainability. It's got to be made of some kinds of materials and technologies which are such that when we disappear, and perhaps when our whole culture and way of making things disappear, can nonetheless be found again, can be made to work, the thing must be repairable and maintainable. Transparency. That means it must be evident in itself how it works. You don't want to have a big manual with it, because nobody reads manuals. The thing itself should exhibit its working process, so that any reasonably intelligent being could approach the thing, find out how it works, and mend it. Evolvability. It should be able to incorporate new ideas, better thoughts than we have. We shouldn't regard this as definitive. And scalability. It should be able to be made large or small. Um, now, all of these thoughts, once you start thinking about those, they seem to me to be the thoughts that you might want to imagine in thinking about the future, not only of a clock, but of 
the whole species and the types of culture that we live in. Um, the actually applying yourself to a real design problem, which we have done, we've, we're currently working on another prototype of the clock. There's, there's a big one, a nine foot tall one in the um, Science Museum in London. Um, in the gallery called The Making of the Modern World. Um, and it works. It's running. Most of the time. Um, we're now making another one, working on another one, with the view to making one that will be probably 80 or 90 feet tall on a mountain we've bought in Nevada. Um, the fact of trying to do something real rather than sitting around a table and just thinking about it immediately starts to stretch your mind. It becomes a, um, a different kind of mental practice and interestingly starts to impact on the way you think about lots of other things. If part of your day has been spent in the next 10,000 years, the rest of your day, which is spent in the next 25 minutes, feels a little bit different. You start to have another place to look at things from. And I, I suppose that's the point of projects like this, of, of having real design processes, of having, uh, of trying to make something that stays for a long time. I'll just show you a couple of pictures, of early pictures of um, ways the clock could have looked but didn't. This, this is a pretty one, I think. Um, I'm not going to talk in detail about how the clock works because Danny is going to give a talk in this series later and he'll be able to do that much better than I am. Because actually I don't really understand it. <laughs> so here's another one. Um, when we were talking about the clock, We started wondering whether it should have a cuckoo. <laughs> Danny's original idea was that the cuckoo should come out every thousand years. <laughs> I thought that was a little ungenerous to the many visitors we anticipate. Um, so we, we worked on various thoughts about what kind of noise the clock might make. Now, being English, of course, I'm very interested in church bells. Um, I don't know how many of you know about change ringing, but it's, it's said by musicologists to be the only thing that the English ever invented in music. Um, since everything else we borrowed from Italians or Africans, or Elvis Presley. Um, so I started thinking about bells, and this, this record that which is called January 7003. I see. This record is the product of the studies I did on different kinds of bells. So, so I started off by studying how real bells work. They work in a very interesting way. They're physically very complicated instruments. Um, and each different from the other. They're 
they're quite um, individual. And so I then started synthetically building new kinds of bells. Um, bells, for instance, which I imagine made of metals that didn't yet exist, or, or something that's halfway between a glass and a metal, or bells where the upper harmonics outlasted the lower harmonics, which never happens in real bells. Um, during doing this, I happened to be sitting playing with my calculator one day, because my life is so desperately miserable that that's what I do a lot of the time. And, and I noticed that the factorial of ten, which is to say the number of combinations of ten things, was this number here. And I also noticed that that's almost the number of days in 10,000 years. So I thought, if you had a 10-bell wheel, you could have a different sequence of bells every day for 10,000 years. So I said to Danny, can you think of a way of figuring out an algorithm that would generate those 3 million odd sequences without ever repeating them? And can you tell me what they would be playing in the month of January 7003. <laughs> and, in fact, the, the longest piece on this record is, is um, those 31 days of January 7003. Um, the algorithm is very interesting, and probably Danny will tell you about that as well when he describes the clock to you. Perhaps we could play a bit of that record quietly. Um, play, oh sorry, it's track one. Track one isn't this piece, by the way. Track one is another set of bells which I invented, which have um, a perfect set of harmonics, which normal bells don't have. So these are, um, this is a harmonic series where ultimate harmonics are five thirds and uh, one and a half times the one before. So if you would just play that quietly in the background, <coughs> tasteful manner. Perhaps you're already doing that, I don't know. <laughs> That's extremely tasteful, I'm sorry. <laughs> to come to fruit 
over such a long period, something beautiful and new, actually. Um, something that I, I think suggests a new, a new era of culture, of collaborative, both in time and space, long-term collaborative projects. We also wanted to think about memory and about the transmission of ideas over long periods of time and the observation of processes over long periods of time. Um, Stuart, in his book, which I can very much recommend, called The Clock of the Long Now, and is the sort of little red book of the Long Now Foundation, um, he talks about something called slow science. Um, there's very little encouragement to slow science. It doesn't produce glamorous papers, quick results, um, peer approval. But there have been examples of very, very long, slow observations. Um, one, for instance, is the, the Admiralty in Great Britain has kept detailed weather charts since 1648. And this, this, they're daily weather charts. So this makes for the longest um, continuous survey of weather in existence, and in fact, it's turned out to be very useful. Another similar survey that was made on, in Hawaii over about a 50-year period was the first definitive evidence of global warming. It showed a continual rise in CO2 in CO2 levels. Um, so these long-term studies are very, very important. But again, they are not really institutionally recognised or encouraged. We wanted Long Now to be the kind of place where they would be encouraged, where we would become the repository and the facilitator for those kinds of long-term thoughts. So, some of the things we're doing, you could say, are done in the negative. They, they're perhaps attempts to avert catastrophes, to avert the tragedy of the commons, if you like, the, the tragedy that makes us exploit as much as we can, as quickly as we can, without thinking of any consequences. But the, the other side of it is, is a positive side, the idea that we could celebrate making something or beginning something that won't be finished in our lifetimes, that won't be finished in many, many lifetimes, something that will grow and embody the intelligence of people for a very long time. It's a choice, really, that we can make. Um, we are building the future, whether we want to or not. We're, we're building it every day. We're building it by every choice and by every omission that we make. We can either do that with our back to it, or we can turn around and look at it as we do it. Um, I think what we're trying to say is, let's turn around and look. So, now I'm going to look at some questions now. No, no, I'll be fine. Sorry, I have to... I've got a long pair of glasses. Okay, this is a good question. Arthur Abraham, the next hundred years look really hard. How will we survive them to reach the long view? Um, 
funnily enough, the next hundred years is the sort of critical time for the clock as well. I think once things have been in existence for a hundred years, people respect them and try to preserve them. Until they're that old, it's tough for them. Um, I, I don't actually know why you particularly, Arthur, are limited to the next hundred years. Um, I'm much more pessimistic than that. I, I think it looks tough all the way from here, really. <laughs> um, unless, we, unless we can start to learn to understand the difference between some things that need to be done slowly but need time, as opposed to the things that we can do quickly. Actually, there's a very nice quote in Stuart's book, if I can find it. Yes, okay. This is, this is where you live in the valley, in my you see. Um, he says, now is the period in which people feel they live and act and have responsibility. For most of us, now is about a week, sometimes a year. For some traditional tribes in the American Northeast and Australia, now is seven generations back and forward, 175 years in each direction. Just as the photographs of the Earth, he's referring to the um, Apollo pictures, space pictures of the Earth, gave us a sense of the big here, we need things now that give people a sense of the long now. Candidate now lengtheners might include abiding charismatic artifacts, extreme longitudinal scientific studies, very large, slow, ambitious projects. I'm feeling back a bit, I think, sorry. Human life extension, highly durable institutions, reward systems for slow, responsible behavior, honoring patience and sometimes disdaining rush, widespread personal feeling for the span of history, and planning practices that preserve options for the future. In a sense, the task here is to make the world safe for hurry by slowing some parts way down. How do you see Terry Hall? I know someone called Terry Hall. says, how do you see the long now as it relates to the current political climate? What can we do to change things? Um, I've been trying desperately hard not to get political, <laughs> because if I did, I know you'd accuse me of being anti-American. <laughs> I just want to make I'm not, by the way. Most of the things politicians do are terribly constrained by the by the way the media present things. Simple thoughts, particularly in America actually, the thoughts have to be very simple, they have to be very easily reproducible. So really you have very little idea what any politicians think about. I, I remember speaking um, uh, some years ago to a guy called Jeff Mulder, who's one of Tony Blair's main advisors. And I said to Jeff, um, why haven't you done any of the things you said you were going to do before you came to government? And he said, oh, well, we have. We have. We've done a lot of them. I said, but nobody knows about them. And he said, well, we didn't tell. And what they had done was some of these very interesting and innovative social projects that they were carrying out. 
they had done them quietly in rather remote British cities to try to observe them and see whether they worked. But they never made any fuss about them because they knew the, the right-wing press in particular would tear them to pieces for it. And it's, it's very easy to discredit an idealistic project. Um, and somehow we have to change the atmosphere around that. We have to try to make it respectable for politicians to say, I'm thinking of the next hundred years, not just the next year or two. I think this will change. I, mean, I, I believe that this problem is something that people are more and more responding to. The political people I know feel terribly limited by not being able to um, have long-term positions and not being able to declare them publicly. Can you give us some examples of long now thinking, historical, that we are reaping the benefits of now? Well, there's one very famous example. Um, it's an English example. I have to do this because I can't see all these things. Um, there's a college in Oxford called New College, which was built about 500 years ago. The college has it's a big, high building and it has very, very thick oak beams to support the ceiling. Um, about 20 years ago, those beams started to appear to be in such bad condition that it was necessary to replace them. So the um, dean of the college said to the head gardener, because um, Oxford has a lot of lands and forests, actually all over England, we need a lot of oaks, what should we do? And the gardener said, well actually when they built that college, they planted a grove of oaks to replace those beams. Um, and apparently those were the oaks that we used. So they, they had been planted something like 500 years in advance of, of their need. So that's a kind of long-term thinking. Um, I don't know that anybody is doing something like that now. <laughs> Somebody says, will we hear another vocal album anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, have you got any of <laughs> Put on music for airports. Tra track um, two. That's vocal. <laughs> Sorry, I'm taking a long time to read this. <laughs> These are very hard questions. I have to say, I was hoping for something a bit easier than this. Um, okay. Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> Oh, well, this is an interesting question. I've never thought of this before. Eric Thomas says, why have song tempos got so fast? And what do faster song tempos mean for the future? Well, I would just theorize that song tempos are so fast because people want to create something that's more atmospheric than beat. You know, what, what happened with jungle music in the 90s in England was tempo became so fast that it stopped being rhythm, it just became a plateau of sound. 
So maybe it's another way to make ambient music. Because what they're all trying to do. <laughs> What's the most useful thing someone could do to alleviate human suffering? <laughs> it takes us back to American politics, doesn't it? <laughs> well, that's a very hard question. I'd like to know if anybody has an answer to that. Um, I, actually, I want to solicit the help of this audience. I had the idea a while ago, I was talking to some young art students in London, um, talking about the state of the world and what could be done for the future. And I realized that they felt absolutely helpless. They, they felt that the world was pretty much sewn up by big corporations and by unlistening um, governments. This was, this was just after Tony Blair had ignored the, British, the biggest demonstration in British history and gone to war anyway. We had two million people in London. That's 4% um, of our population. <laughs> Demonstrating on the coldest day of the year as well. Um, so there was a sort of feeling of powerlessness after that. And you can turn that crack off. <laughs> and this, this feeling, this powerlessness, really was um, quite paralyzing to these kids, I thought. And I thought there were two problems here. First of all, they didn't really know which issues to grapple with. And they didn't have any idea how to go about it, or any confidence at all that they would have any effect. So I had an idea for a book, which would be called something like 250 Projects for a Better Future. And each page would have one project in it. And it could be a very big thing, like desalination. You know, one of the big issues of the future is going to be water. Water for irrigation, for human use. Um, and if we could find a better way of creating fresh water from seawater, that would be a big step forward. Um, so one page might say desalination. The next paragraph would say desalination is the process of converting salt water to drinkable water. Um, the next paragraph would say who's been working on this and how far they've got. Probably refer you to various books and websites. And the final one would say, and here's what you could do. Invent a way of desalinating water, obviously. Um, or send money to someone who's trying to do it, or something, help them out. Um, or it could be very, very local problems, like how do we help old people in our community? Um, can I contribute to a local school in some way? Um, I thought having a book of 250 projects like that, sit on the laboratory and flip through. <laughs> I always think of laboratories when I think of reading. <laughs> and you come across one and say, oh, that's a good one. I, I could do something. I wouldn't mind doing that. Um, and I thought it would be a sort of recipe book for young people looking for some place to put their idealistic energy. 
So, anyway, my invitation is I now need to find 250 projects. So if anyone has anything to contribute, I've already got a publisher for this book. I promise you'll be credited and um, in due course receive a copy. So any of you who haven't used your things for these questions, please write your little project on them and give them to me. Um, sorry, I'll just use this flashy little modern light here, which doesn't work in design in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Thanks. Pam Winfrey! <laughs> oh, this is a nice question. How does the concept of a 10,000 year clock affect the way that you feel about your own lifespan? Well, this is, this is a little bit like the music for airports thing. It takes the pressure off you a bit to feel that you're part of a long continuum of human life. There's going to be plenty more after you've gone. <laughs> there was plenty more already. Um, it sort of takes the pressure off, I think. It makes you slightly less precious and less tight about your own time of life. Um, it's a lesson that I have to keep relearning, but I, I think I'm getting better at that. Um, and of course, certainly embarking on long-term projects, doing things that you know put in place things that survive you is, is very much a part of that feeling. You know, I, I was just in a garden, <coughs> beautiful capability brown garden in England about a month ago, and the garden looks absolutely fabulous, and I realised that it's probably now at its best. So this garden was planted maybe 230 years ago, and all those beautiful big trees must have been like that when they planted the garden. So, so the people who commissioned it, the Lord and Lady who commissioned it, would never have seen the garden as, as it was supposed to be. But it must have been quite nice to die thinking that the garden's going to be beautiful in 230 years' time. So, so I think one of the things about long-term thinking is that it reduces the pressure on your own life to constantly be performing, to constantly be absolutely um, full of action, you know. It just lets you relax a little bit. David Battino. Fifty years from now, when we all have broadband receivers embedded in our skulls, haven't you got yours yet? <laughs> Will we be paying for silence instead of music? Yes, absolutely right. <laughs> I, I've done my best, actually, in that respect. Um, making music that has less and less sound in it. <laughs> I'm getting there. Um, actually, in the 1950s, I heard, there used to be jukeboxes in America that, you, that had a one-sided disc on. So if you, if you want a bit of peace, you put your dime in and dial up that number and you've got three minutes of silence. <laughs> I'd love to get a collection of those records. <laughs> a jukebox where that's all you had. <laughs> Different varieties of silence. Um, okay, little Mike says, not to devalue your efforts, but isn't it kind of effete 
or distance from reality to focus only on the future when so much needs to be done in the here and now. Well, I think that's a good point and I should have addressed that better. I think the point of focusing on the future is not so that you stop thinking about the here and now, it's so that you think about the here and now in a more productive way. It's so that you think of it as connected to the future rather than as stopping in three or five years' time. So hopefully, the thinking about the future is not a removal from the now, but a different way of immersing it, a different way of understanding it, and a way of trying to see it in terms of its played out consequences. But thank you for that question. You bastard. <laughs> Both 
um, processes that only operate over time, really. They only operate where there are continued interactions between the same people. That's why you don't get very much crime in small towns, because there's such a social pressure against it. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good to be disliked so much by the people you know. And it does feel good, on the other hand, to be well-liked. So there's, there's a tremendous encouragement with long-term interactions to behave well. What would happen over five years? What would happen over 15, over 20, over 50? And as you start to slide that scale and actually try to think through um, the kinds of social processes that would happen, you start to realize that time is actually the single biggest factor in, in how we choose to regard our affairs and how we choose to construe them. So I, I would think, um, in answer to Roxanne's question, that, that a very good exercise for um, children at school, for instance, would be to say, um, what would you do if you were all going to die in a year? <laughs> As you can see, I had a very cheerful class. And just when you're doing I'll play some music that will help you die. <laughs> Um, did you just give me one, Stuart? Are you being mean with this? He's filtering for me. <laughs> okay, this is from Eugene Chen. It seems that humans have an urge to improve things, and this habit is actually making things worse. That John Cage said that actually, he said, don't try to change the world, you'll only make it worse. But I don't agree with him. I, I think um, you don't have a choice. Okay, so he then says, but if this is true, won't we eventually figure this out and reverse ourselves? Yes. Yes, I think we can say that. Um, I think that... One of the most interesting um, movements in science now that's affecting a lot of the science is complexity theory. Complexity starts to try to understand what happens when a lot of um, variables interact. Um, it's something that I'm very interested in. In fact, a lot of my music is based on this idea of creating processes where um, the same few elements interact and cluster and permutate in different ways. And I'm always amazed at the richness and variety of that. Well, there's now a science that deals with this and deals with the manifestations of this. And one of the things that becomes very obvious from that kind of study is that um, there's a very, very tenuous linkage between the beginnings and the ends of processes that um, we have to, we really can't set in train very long-term plans that aren't evolving. We have to be able to make things that can be buffeted, actually, and can, can learn from being buffeted. So, for instance, I would say there's a discouragement, a 
general discouragement towards those monster projects like the Three Gorges Dam in China, which um, is a sort of huge and basically undoable, unchangeable project. Um, it will change a great deal in, in China and uh, it, it won't be easy to undo. We, we had an experience, I was a part of this but some years ago, a couple of years ago, when the Long Now Foundation was asked to consider um, disposal of atomic waste. Um, could we think about disposing of atomic waste for a 10,000 10, year period? Um, am I allowed to talk about this? Maybe classified for a moment. Um, so the, uh, a huge series of holes have been dug in a mountain, Yucca Mountain. Enormous holes. And a lot of money spent, I think it was $16 billion, on creating something that would be safe for 10,000 years. Which of course is an almost <coughs> impossible and unverifiable aim. And what the Long Now people um, thought about that was Actually, it's the, long, it's the wrong frame of time to think in. You can't make a, a safe judgment over that period of time. So it would be better to make something that would work for, say, a hundred years, and then reconsider the problem and remake it, do it again. So I think one of the things about this kind of thinking is not only understanding that you can embrace the long future, but also very much understanding that in doing so, you don't predict it. You, you simply try to think about how you will negotiate it, how it could be negotiated. Oh yes, well that's it. <laughs>
People coming after that will be Jim Dewar from Grand. Uh, he's got a brand new center of policy studies for the very long term. For them, that's 35 to 200 years. Um, dust asteroids kept coming up tonight, and the, the uh, definitive study of that comes from Apollo 9 astronaut Rusty Schweiker, uh, who will be here in March, uh, looking at the asteroid threat over the next 100,000 years, revealing that this continuity is at a deep level. Daniel Jansen, the famous preservation biologist from Costa Rica, has a completely different view on preservation. Basically, he says, it's all gardening, it's always been gardening. And if you take that approach, a lot of things come a lot clearer. On David Lindsay, who will be doing a fabulously graphic piece with maps, uh, later in July, Joel Tarter from SETI uh, will be here in on it goes. So you're welcome here every second Friday. Thank you very much.